You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Perth Property Show. My name's Trent Fleskins, your host as always this week for the first time in 198 episodes. We are talking architecture. It's taken me a while to get someone of this caliber on the podcast, but I was definitely waiting to get someone in with a resume to this caliber and it's Jimmy Thompson, director of MJA Studio. Thank you so much for coming in, mate. It means a lot and I'm super excited to learn a bit from you today. Thanks, Trent. Happy to be here. Jimmy, just like a lot of the heavy hitters in the property development, property investment, real estate industry we've had on the last few weeks, I'd like to talk about you. I want to talk about your life and then we'll segue into talking about the impact you make the challenges you have in doing so and the opportunities that Perth has. So if we can start off with little Jimmy, 17, 18 years old, coming out of high school, did you always know you wanted to be an architect? It was actually like when I really wind it back, there's a couple of events. One, I remember walking down Nan Street with my um, my sister Claire and that's down in Fremantle and she showed us this building on the corner there and it was a building that Michael Petroni did in probably 1988 or so. So it would have been pretty fresh when I saw it I would have been six or seven. What sort of style was it built in? Well it's a really interesting building because it basically holds the street but it's essentially almost a courtyard warehouse apartment building. Okay. The original building has all the windows have been taken out and you've essentially created a void behind there to create the open space for the apartments behind and I remember Claire saying well check this out and me asking well what is this and she goes this is architecture and I was like, wow, that's, that's cool. And I still like, I walk past it now and still go, it's, a, it's an awesome approach to you know, building in the West End and it's still a damn cool building. Uh, and I told Michael about it because we've done a bit of work together over the years. And he I'm sure he would have been chuffed. Yeah, no, yeah. Yeah, it, was, it, was, it was good. It was a good chat. Uh, and the other one was a, a book that I read probably similar sort of age at Loretta Netherlands and is in the library and it was basically it was a kid's book of animals houses and so it went through like the bee's house was like it was a sectional diagram cut through a bee's nest and it was like this pimping penthouse apartment and then yeah, they had right. like this um <laughs> the beaver's house was like this riverside kitchen window which then had a raking sort of uh, profile which overlooked you know the river and everything and I remember just getting into the idea of houses and building and difference. So they're the th- two things that I really remember. And I and guess... This, goes, this is obviously really deep-seated. You're talking about when you're in primary school here. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And then for a while through high school, I probably thought about doing more graphic design. You're, in the, um, you're one of the art kids in the art, yeah, art yeah. class most of the time. Yep. Yeah, art and history. It's definitely a lot better doing that than, than maths and science. Yeah. <laughs> Not too bad at maths, but science wasn't great. But definitely all the humanities I was much, much better at. But yeah, I think almost through high school, especially later on, it was was always something which I thought was was likely to be the thing that I wanted to do. Interesting how there is this really big industry and career pathway like architecture, drafting, all those things. But in high school, most schools never touch on any of that. You have to wait to get out of high school before you even pick up any of that equipment. Yeah, like we did a bit of tech drawing, but it was only, I guess, through the school that I went to at JDC was designed by Broderick. And so that had a fair bit of architecture within it. And I knew his son who went through school with us. So I knew a few architects and I guess there was a bit of culture of that. It's interesting that there's a few different urban designers and other crew who are 
trying to start running like walking tours with high school kids to take them around to different projects. Tim Dawkins at Urbis is doing it. And I think that's awesome. I think we really need to talk about the why. The why is so important about why things can be better, why you should give a shit about what you do, you know, and how you can get a better built environment. So look, most of Perth, most of the world right now has a skills shortage. Is there a skills shortage based on career pathway through university, I guess, in architects? Is it hard for you to find good architects at MGA, for example, right now? We are relatively fortunate because we've got a good culture within the studio and people want to come work with us. We hire slowly and sustainably and we've been okay. If you needed to grow fast at the moment, you would you'd really struggle. Mm. And especially landscape architecture, is there's probably an even more severe shortage. In architecture, I would say there's a shortage, but I would think that everyone's going to get jobs relatively easy compared to when we graduated. Yeah. Well, and that's a stigma that I remember when I was in university, and we can talk to your pathway there in a second, is that I remember it's a really long degree and a lot of people dropped out pretty quickly because they had this cool idea they wanted you know i I guess what we think the rosy side of architecture is and they got Mm. bogged down in the five years of it pretty quickly year two three half of them are dropping out was was that the reality is it still a reality yeah like it's not all turtlenecks and uh thick ring glasses (laughs) you know but we would have had 180 kids starting as the sort of cohort and probably 25 graduated so yeah jeez huge dropout rate (laughs) that's massive um but it's a brutal degree it is a hard occupation you have to balance a lot of different requirements and different to engineering there's no right answers so you never stop designing like we used to work basically we had 24 hour access to our studios we would work 16 hours a day six days a week basically and we'd be there all night and it was great because there's actually an environment where you worked with your mates and it was also you know a friendly competition around it like guys sitting next to you is just drawing a killer perspective or section and you're like oh, now I've got to do that you know yeah and breeds competition breeds yeah. new ideas the and juices you, are flowing very much and you share a lot through that time and I'm still really tight with a lot of the people that we went through uni with there's probably eight guys in the studio which we all studied together so I think there's a part of that there's also you've got to be really thick-skinned to get through architecture school and in a way that's good training for your future career so when you have to present your projects and concepts to juries basically and we're getting critiqued yeah and that's you're taking that personally right well you've got to learn to not take it personally for a lot of people it's hard to present publicly in a public forum and doing that in front of peers that you love and respect their work and then they make you cry like that's a pretty confronting thing for 17 and 18 years old so you get a big dropout rate in the first three years because it's a double degree but the people who stay they'll they'll kick on but then a lot of people who study architecture go and work in other fields as well there's very good skills that you have to learn around critical thinking around presentation creativity which are useful for lots of different careers i still recommend it to people i think it's a worthwhile pursuit you've just got to be in it for the right right reasons you you learn right i guess it really does push you to question whether you are in architecture for the nuts and bolts of it which will see you through decades of uh, ups and downs or you're in it for i guess a little bit of the fluffy glory that you might uh, see in front covers or on websites which is possibly you don't have the skin to get through that at the end of the day how do you then transition out of that what was your first job did five years. I took a year off in between. So I did the first degree, which is environmental design, uh, and then went travelling. So I always travelled a lot since I was a kid. Very lucky 
that my folks always took us around different parts of the world and when we were growing up so I've always had that bug and I guess I spent a year going through Southeast Asia and then working in London meeting my now partner Angie spending some time in Greece uh, and then coming home finished off the degree a couple of years later and then First bit of work really was working with uh, Andrea Quagliola and Michael Petroni, just helping them out doing some modelling, so physical modelling for a house. Did that for a few weeks. What do you mean by physical modelling? So literally, like you imagine a doll's house, but you know, much more architectural, cutting cardboard and building a physical model. Were so, you still doing that for, just for people's houses? Yeah, yeah, this yeah. Is thing. Yeah, and we still build models in the studio, not as much as we probably like, but certainly through uni, I only learned computer modelling and drawing probably in the last semester of fifth year. So we drew by hand, pen and ink, and if you got something wrong, you'd have to get a scalpel and scratch it out and yeah. trace and trace. And we basically modelled everything physically. So would, some models would be smallish, one to a couple of hundred. Uh, others would be you know much more detailed, big one to 50 models sectional models of airports or one of the last ones we did which was non-western architecture an elective i built a, a tongakan house but with no glue so this is a very complicated sulawesi traditional indonesian house quite complex structure but it was all basically sort of mortise and tennis joints and bound joints like cardboard and string essentially was what it was yeah yeah this one was all timber timber and string and notched and very difficult but what it makes you do is learn structure learn how things can go together that's eye-opening for me straight away obviously you've seen the big models when you go to an apartment display village sitting there this huge apartment that from all reports i hear costs 250 dollars for these to get to put together but my understanding is they get made by very small little hands in southeast <laughs> asia or china and then shipped over here very delicately to think that that work could still be happening in Perth is quite interesting. Yeah, there's still a model shop in Perth and they make models just as good as the ones over there. Look, to be honest, it's a bit hard for architects to see those sort of models because they're kind of like train set models. Yes. When we make models, they're usually just a pure block colour of beautiful timber or something like that and they're a bit more abstract. <laughs> so yes. when we see it with all the fluffy moss and everything, we're like, oh, cringe. <laughs> but there's studios, you know, a guy that works with us, when he worked in London with Foster and Partners, he worked in a model shop and they had a full-time team of people making models within the studio. That's very know. cool. Yeah. So what was next? Graduated. I met a guy called Ross McDonald. This is that thing of paths diverging and Sliding leading. Doors. Yeah. I'd met a guy, Dave Anthony, who he'd built a house in North Freo, beautiful house that Blaine Brackenridge had designed, incredible parabolic concrete roof. And I met him at a party and he'd said, oh, look, you know, do you want to be introduced to Blaine? Blaine doesn't have anyone to draw in CAD. I was almost too scared to go and follow this through. Because, you know, well, like, when you graduate, you, you see your heroes of design and you're like... Just feel like you'd go to water if you met someone like that. Yep. So anyway, through a different connection, I met a guy called Ross, and yeah, I ended up. He offered me a job straight out, two man band. He and just I needed a kid to do CAD. Yeah, he quickly discovered that I could do more than just that, and. He was great, and one of the things about working in small practice early on is that in bigger practices, you might end up drawing toilets for two years. Yeah, pigeonholed. Yeah, but in a small practice, you get exposed to everything really quick. Roscoe discovered quickly that my design skills were good, so he would just, in the first couple of weeks, gave us a house to design in the hills. Incredibly beautiful, great site up in Kitchigana. Which, by the way, is a suburb with the longest median hold time in Perth. Do you know that? Really? Yeah, people live in Gidjigana in their house for longer than any other suburb in Perth. 
That's really interesting. Yeah. I know it's beautiful up there. Um, obviously, there's some fires recently, and unfortunately, that house um, got burnt down in the fires, which was really sad. Cause yeah, really, heartbreaking. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, so working with Roscoe was a really great opportunity to get exposed to design, documentation, and delivery, and probably development. He had a background in property and also in construction, so I learned a lot. So I worked a couple of years with him, and then again, me and my partner Angie, we decided no, we want to go away for a year. So we took a year off and just travelled around the world. Saw lots of great buildings and architecture and met a whole bunch of lifelong friends. Just as we were about to get back, we were in New York when the GFC happened. So when the whole crash in late September occurred. So I got back and I was like, <laughs> we were planning to continue because we had a wedding in Perth and we were going to continue on travelling. But Roscoe offered me the, the job back and I was like, yeah, it's probably a good idea to take yeah. this up. So I worked for a couple of more years with him and then his work started to slow down. I started teaching at UWA. Uh, I'd done a bit of teaching before and still had friends teaching there. It was also GFC time, so Stephen Corns, who works with us now, is one of the owners at NJA. He was working for Michael Petroni. He sort of went down to a couple of days a week and so we started to moonlight together doing houses by this stage do you feel like you're an ambitious young man who was on a path to being a very influential architect in western australia or were you sort of just rolling around enjoying just the day rolling around and then roscoe had previously had a business with danny jones so i think roscoe must have approached him and said oh, have you got anything that we can help you out with danny said yep yeah, no worries how about you help us out with the State Reception Centre? This was for Chogham going back 12 odd years now. So we went, great, we'll, we'll help you design and deliver this building. And then we, he also asked me to work with him on a project down in Coogee for Australand on the peninsula there. I reckon it was one meeting or presentation that I did with Dano and either fake it till you make it or you just, you get into situations where you, you do your thing and you find a confidence in what you do. Um, and that's confidence probably driven by travels and understanding different places where things work differently to Perth. So I remember referencing and talking about a whole different bunch of scenarios uh, for waterfront developments. Anyway, off the back of that, Dano was like, I want you to join MJ. At the time, it was McDonald Jones. I want you to help change design culture. And he really wanted to get me, Wes and Mark working together. I thought that sounds a lot better than being unemployed. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but also kind of surprised it's like I was 29 and... I was suddenly thrust into a design directorship kind of role. I'd never really been involved in business or parents are both doctors and surgeons, but we weren't entrepreneurial kind of people. So it was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> like I said, it sounds better than being unemployed. Yeah. So I took it on. And I guess took it on also because Danny understood that the business needed to change. It needed to change direction and that things in Perth were going to be different going forward. Um, so When was, was this? This would have been 2010 late 2010 he was finishing his career he'd done a whole bunch of different stuff but he wanted to exit I guess he recognized that he really wanted to get Mark Wes and myself working together and some young guns with new ideas yeah fresh perspectives and it was a really interesting time in Perth the studio itself was very different because um, it was 12 staff so much smaller than it is now pretty much all men except admin and there's no music in the studio everyone wore the same clothes and you walk in and you go wow <laughs> this got to change there was appetite for change between mark wes and myself and so over a period of years we essentially bought out the other directors and turned it into something very different and like i was saying this was at a time when design advisory committees had just come in so alana mctinnan she was at the time would have been mayor of vincent so she'd established one there and that started to change the game in terms of incentive-based planning policies. So in the city of Vincent, where we are now, essentially for design excellence and sustainability outcomes, you could get bonus plot ratio and height. 
and that was huge because suddenly, you know, a lot of our older clients we could talk to and say, well, we could start talking about the value of design and something that developers could actually really engage with. It's not just a one-to-one service yeah. here. Yeah. And what we recognised pretty early was that we can't change property development in Perth and the outcomes overnight. You're not going to do it in one project. It's incremental development. So back then, there was a kind of market apathy to what is good design outcomes. You know, between option A and option B down the road, there wasn't a lot of understanding from the general public around what is a better livability outcome, like access to light, ventilation. But we thought if we can work with design advisory communities, get quicker approvals, get better livability outcomes, slowly we can chip away. And so things that we would have to fight really hard for, like PV panels or dual aspect apartments, suddenly became an expected norm from marketing agents. And part of the trade-off. Yeah. With the developer going, well, look, yeah, we'll, put, we'll throw these in because I get an extra four floors. Yeah. And then suddenly those things just became embedded in the next project and yep. they became a standard. And then you move on to the next horizon. Of, and now we're on electric vehicle charges. Yeah, like there's so much over the last 10 years which has evolved in that space. And even the way projects are marketed, how they use designers' names as a marketable tool now which never happened before. So when we were starting out, we were able to leverage off design advisory committees getting better outcomes. So these are good things. You're happy that there are design advisory committees or design review panels across all the cities now. Yeah, because in the end, we want to demonstrate that commercial outcomes are not mutually exclusive to end-user amenity and aspirations of the local community. You want to actually demonstrate that that triangle is mutually inclusive, especially when you have incentive-based planning policies. That's where you can really clearly demonstrate it. And that's where we see better outcomes. And I think Perth's much better for it in terms of we've got to get people to understand that you can live in a home which is an apartment and it can be a really great thing for you. A viable option. And I think this is the funny thing. Across most of the rest of the world, including the parents of my wife, for example, who live in Switzerland, they've lived in an apartment. They're quite comfortable financially. They've lived in an apartment, the same apartment for the last 23 years. Hmm. Not only because apartment living is a very acceptable outcome across all socioeconomic segments in Switzerland and most of Europe, but also because it was designed that well that they didn't have to leave. It didn't need to be improved. It was designed for long-term outcomes. And that is where you guys come in in Western Australia. And I've noticed, you know, I guess from when you're last talking 2010 to 2022 now, design has certainly changed, especially in the last five years. It feels like apartment development specifically has gone a long way in becoming uh, more communal. It's not just the pool and the gym that no one ever uses. There's a lot more going on in how we use our spaces. And I, I guess the more space you've got, the more you can do with it. I live in an MJ studio designed de- uh, development, Bottle Yard, down the road on Palmerston Street. And whilst the developer ended up going broke, it was a very well awarded design that I think still stands up as a very usable design. Over the years, I guess, you've started to build a brand to a point now where even myself, someone who's not specifically very strong in design, I can recognize when, oh, that MJ must have designed that. I can see it. How have you been able to build that? Has it come out of all the technology now that render technology comes through and you've just got your own filters or your own specific style? There's a lot of archways going on these days. You can, I, can, I personally can tell, oh, that must be an MJ. And I go, oh, yeah, I'm right. All right, let's go back to what our purpose is as a, as a business. Mm. It's like we all spend an inordinate amount of time in buildings. We don't spend enough time outside, essentially. We spend a lot of times, whether it's at work or at home, in buildings and so we have an inherent responsibility that we create happy healthy buildings because there's a distinct relationship between you know 
physical and mental health and the buildings that you inhabit. And we want to exceed our clients' expectations of what we can achieve on projects. That's that's part of our purpose, so doing those two things together. As part of that, we have a series of values. One of them, I won't go through all of them because it might take a while, but the main one is like design like you give a damn. Don't do things just for the sake of doing things. Like Actually have context-driven buildings which have got deep thought in them. And so I, I would counter that we don't have an in-house style, but I'd say we have a consistent approach in the buildings that we do. One that's in Northbridge is going to be different to one that's in Subiaco or, or Karanop or anywhere else. But I think there's a consistency of intent in, in what we do, and people can probably recognise that because we honestly really give a shit about what we do. We spend a lot of time designing and redesigning and trying to get outcomes that work for our clients that future residents uh, or end users, but also the local community. And we like to work collaboratively. We like to work, and like I was saying before about, do I like the fact that we have design advisory committees? Absolutely, because they're part of the process of actually holding us to account. And the better buildings that we do, the more trust that people have in the development industry. And that's really important. And then the the other side of the coin as well, when you do a great job, they're there to applaud you as a third party, not just a town planner who wouldn't know any different either. Yeah. And it was really interesting, for instance, at the Bottle Yard. So we took over that job from another architect who couldn't get through design advisory committee and I think it been rejected at that. So we were approached to review the scheme and we said, look, it, it, it doesn't work. You've got to start again. And there was already an action group against it, local residents. So we came in and at the time, John Kerry was mayor of Vincent and we, we held some public consultation at the Northbridge Hotel. That meeting started, it was pretty raucous because everyone had essentially expected that we were just going to continue on the old scheme and try and get this whole thing steamroll through. steamrolled through. And But we took a very different approach and it was on a Saturday morning and we just presented, as we would to a design advisory committee. All of our research into the neighbourhoods, around how it was used by the Muru people, how it was the market gardens when Alan Bonds owned it. Took them through the whole story and presented really respectfully around the reasons why this building's going to be like it is. And we'd changed uh, heights, but there was a whole lot of context-driven design decisions around window sizes that referenced adjacent federation housing, around how we could use bottle glass colours that were covered on site to be integrated within. And by the end of the meeting, the whole tone of the room had changed. And everyone from going from some pretty nasty heckling to people... Oh, charged up. Yeah, to actually being really stoked that they might not agree with all of the heart, and we ended up negotiating to push it in different spots, but they understood that we were designing like we give it down and that we understood the neighbourhood. And in the end, we had members of that same action group speaking in support of the submission and proposal at DAP. You know, and that's the thing, like, you've got to treat people with respect and not just say, well, there's just people in NIMBYs. They're not. You just haven't talked to them enough about what you're trying to do. And there's another project called William and Alma up in Mount Lawley. So this is a project with parcel property. Is this the fringe project? Yeah, it is. Again, really vocal opposition from neighbours. We ended up getting approved and in the end, you know, some neighbours bought apartments in there. But what was what was really interesting was years later when it was completed, we were there with Dion Robson taking photos of the project and this old nonna, local nonna, walked past and she asked us, what are you what are you doing here? I was like, oh, we're taking photos of this project. And she's like, well, what did you have to do with it? I was like, oh, we were the designers. And she goes, you know, we didn't want this building, but we liked this building. And that's the thing that over time, if we can demonstrate, and it's not just us, but developers and, and architects around, that you can get quality outcomes, you'll start to actually break people's perception of Bit what... Of trust. Yeah, it's, you've got to build trust. Another project for Tim Willing, Clifton and Central. Well, it's just been completed. 
Yeah, it's pretty close. It's it's almost there. It looks finished to yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> but it's the same thing. Like, there's a lot of community angst. But now, when you're there with neighbours, they see the craft and the brickwork. They see the care that's gone into it. That looks go, like a project that no one should ever have a problem with. That's a project that absolutely fits into the fabric of Mount Lawley to a T. Who would be objecting to this in the first place? There's always objecting. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we've ever had a scheme that's you know, had total support of uh, our neighbours. But look, that, and that is totally fine. You know, there's projects that I disagree with. You can't just expect is what you're doing and you think it's right that everybody should think it's right. Yep. But what we need to do is have better conversations about the why and do it earlier. And also then show people the successes. We always try and get councils and design advisory committees that have supported us or not to come back to projects when it's completed and to see it. So when they review in the future, they can go, oh yeah, I understand why you're trying to do that. And again, it's, it's building trust. What was your favorite project in the last 12 years being at MJA that you look back on and go, I'm really proud of that? It's a really hard question. It's like, you know, which is your favorite child? Yeah, and of, <laughs> of many children. Yeah. I really like that we work on a diverse range of projects. So we, while housing is a, probably a speciality, we work on everything from small scale to large scale, from four apartments in Cot to 800 apartments in other girls' schools. So we do stuff for Department of Communities and we do high-end luxury stuff. Jimmy, pick your favourite child and tell us which one we should go have a look at. Let's string this out for a bit so I can think about which one. But it's the same thing. You go from student housing to aged care, anyway, and hospitality and all, and all the rest. Look, I'm not going to pick one because it's, it's too hard. But I will say that there are ones which turn the needle a bit. Like I was describing before about incremental change, Bottle Yard was a huge one for us because we turned public opinion. We've got significant additional yields uh, and height on site and the public loved it, development industry loved it, it sold well, it was a great win-win. I think Cirque was really important for us, and um, we'd done a lot of projects with uh, Luke Reinick and his team. At, this is in Mount Weatherly? Yeah. And that's a fantastic development. My friend lives there, and we've used the communal dining room to play massive board games on because the apartment was a little bit smaller for this huge board game yeah, that right. we played, right? We've used the pool, we've used the library. Uh, we yeah. haven't yet used the communal cinema. We've yeah. used the barbecue area outside. But people are listening to this going, holy crap, what's this apartment development <laughs> with a library? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. There's some, this is a really cool development. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great one. And again, that was the first building in the Canning Bridge structure plan area. So that was really important to, to set a really strong standard. A lot standard. of people would have been very scared about it because it was the first one. Yeah, look, I mean, we're all building 20-storey building next to single residential. But again, it's a great incentive-based planning policy area. So, you know, you've got additional height for design and sustainability outcomes, which I just think that needs to be embedded in our planning system. Mm. It's, it's critical. It seems like it's something that's missing. Height, for example, if we can move on to some challenges in the industry right now, height seems to be this pariah of discretionary opportunities that amongst all fields being parking, noise, waste, traffic, plot ratio, height seems to be the one that everyone's most sensitive about when really to be able to provide more landscaping and more communal areas on the ground floor, you need to make the building smaller. You generally need to make the building, therefore, taller. Yeah, look, we are a bunch of flatlanders. Like, that's a pretty flat place. And I think it's kind of... Well, our topography influences our understanding of height. But, yeah. but the thing is, you know, people travel and they you go to... Lots of cities, especially European and cities which you have standard heights of six to eight stories and people love it. But then they come back here and it's like, I don't want that in my neighbourhood. Oh, look at a place like Paris, for example. That's a very homogenous height, but it's all five stories. Yeah, but the good thing about Paris, and that comes back to thinking around design and a holistic approach, is that 
the width of streets is relative to the height of buildings, so you can get solar penetration on streets. So that makes good sense. But I guess getting back to your question around height, absolutely with projects like The Grove and, and Karen Up and others, it's really it's a volumetric exercise. It's like we can create more public space on ground, you can get more garden space, more deep soil if we get more verticality. And Who does it hurt? Who walks past a 20-storey building and goes, I feel like I have less amenity given the fact it's not 15 storeys? I think it's important that the local community can get access to, to ground plane Beyond that, there are people which will get overshadowed. It's a transitionary thing. Like in Canning Bridge, you know, when you're building 20 storeys next to a single-storey house, obviously it's like you're going to well, affect someone. But It's overshadowed I, from the fourth storey up, for example. It doesn't matter if it's 50 storeys or 20. Yeah. That house is always going to be overshadowed. Yeah, and that's a fair fair point. So, look, there, there are people get affected, but if you have a well-planned master plan, you can mitigate some of those things. But I would say, you know, it's interesting talking about favourite projects and ones that turn the needle a bit. Forbes. This is Applecross? Applecross with Mustira. So it was a collaboration with us and Waiha, Richard Hassel out of Singapore. Was that hard to collaborate with another architect, whether they're in Perth or not? I don't know that architects like to collaborate much. Oh, they all have their own style and their own ownership of things and everything. We don't have a lot of ego about what we do. We like collaborating. Waiha are incredible architects. So it's, it was an opportunity? Absolutely. And we we do JVs with lots of architects. It's like anything. Like you've got to, you want to collaborate with people who have got a line values don't work with dickheads yeah. <laughs> like you know it's a kind of common rule in any kind of business yeah. so what's good about well, forbes well forbes turned the needle in terms of green plot ratio that's a 100 percent green plot ratio which is you know we're required to do 10 percent deep soil or if you can't meet 10 percent, then to get to an aggregate of 20 percent structured planting but this was a 100 percent. this was three points of light and natural ventilation to every lobby space. This was public access at ground and first level. This was creating a vertical apple cross. That whole thing around concept, design, resident amenity was completely unheard of. Now it's under construction, which is amazing. It's going to be an incredible building. But we were originally looking for a lot more height and we were really trying to leverage those outcomes to prove that really great design should warrant increases in height. Well, the argument there is if this is such a good design, such a good micro-community, you should be availing as many people as possible to this immediate locale, right? Absolutely. Every time you don't add an extra floor, it's four more families or two more families, whatever it is, that don't get to access that on a daily basis forever. And look, you know, with that one, and especially talking about turning the needle, in Singapore, Richard had gone through a process of over years demonstrating that 100% grain plot ratio was achievable. And the, the mayor in Singapore had been trying to get developers to do it for a long time. How do you do that? Explain to everyone how you get 100% green plot ratio so essentially it's a series of sky gardens and and vertical gardens and roof terraces so it's i mean i've done it at my house you can do it in buildings it's it's not that hard you just need to be able to have vegetated areas on multiple levels okay um and multiple planes yeah absolutely and then vertical walls and that sort of thing but when he did it in singapore the first time and actually achieved it suddenly the mayor could go everything that she'd been trying to achieve to get developers to do it and they'd said no it's too hard can't do it suddenly there was a built example and everyone went yeah okay we can do it you know yeah. <laughs> and now it's just <laughs> a, now it's a standard yeah. and so if that's what we wanted to do with Hoiha for Forbes in the end even though we had supportive design advisory support of the local council it got knocked back three times at JDAP why this is one thing that I've been involved with a lot of planning over projects and this is a really weird one when usually if you've got support of design advisory committee, you've got them speaking at DAP for you in support. You've got the local council on board generally get it approved. But this one, yeah, it was all to do with heart. And look, it was a tricky site because 
And this is where master planning of precincts becomes so important because in all of our projects, the biggest issues come where you get a zoning cliff, basically. Transition. Yeah, and when that transition's too steep, even with the best design, you're going to get someone who goes, who's going to call it out and go, even though it's a master planning problem, it's a problem for you mm. and your project. And that really was the problem at Forbes. Everyone recognised how good the scheme was, but it was it was a height issue and it was a transition issue. So that came from the M10 zone uh, to the H4 zone. So a 10-storey with bonuses yeah. to a four-storey with not really any no bonuses. bonuses. Yeah. That's a bit of a difference. Yeah, it's a steep cliff to, to deal with. And so in the end, you know, we didn't even get to the discretionary height limit. We were 13 storeys. And that really impacts the feasibility of a development that is spending more money than it probably would have had to on the things that try and make it world leading. Absolutely. So in the end, it's a very different type of project. Ended up being much larger apartments. It's going to be probably, it's a, it will be a world leading project. And so very happy that it's going to get, that it's under construction and going to get built. It's just different to how it was originally conceived. And look, and that's the thing about property development and design is you've got to be nimble and you've got to be able to roll with the punches and move on. That took a, <laughs> we took a lot of punches in that process. Though. Yeah. Well, a lot of people are taking a lot of punches in the JDAP process in Western Australia these days. Do you think there needs to be a change in the paradigm of how we assess urban infill, for example, from a design perspective and therefore a planning perspective to unlock the ability for us to stop relying on urban fringe land development? Is there a disconnect between the state-level goals we have of urban infill and the planning schemes we have at local government levels to actually achieve what we should be trying to achieve? I'd start with saying, you know, we do projects across the country and WI does have a comparatively progressive planning system. Like, not all of our projects end up at the tribunal, you know, which is not the case on the other side of the country. very tough in Sydney, for example. Things take two, three years to get an approval. Yep, And, and in Melbourne, the same. When I tell people about the DAP system and the timeframes, they're all amazed. And so it comes partly back to that conversation around trust and the obligation and responsibility is inherent on developers and architects to do good things. The issue that we have, similar to zoning cliffs, is that town planning schemes don't get updated enough. And so it's always a process of developers and architects and designers pushing for more relative to an existing town planning scheme, but probably consistent with where that town planning scheme should be. And that's where the probably the disconnect is. That town planning schemes take a long time to get up. They go through a long process. And then as soon as they're installed, they're almost out of date. And that's kind of the issue. And that's where a lot of conversations around height and discretion come back to because it's how does your proposal relate to the existing town planning scheme? And there is often a disconnect there and not because the proposal is wrong. It's just because to achieve the goals of the state, the town planning schemes just aren't always consistent and up to date with where they need to be. What are you excited about when it comes to what you guys are doing with regards to new design? Where are we going in the next few years where if I was living in an apartment like Bottle Yard, for example, right now, which was designed and built five, six years ago to if I moved in a couple of years into a new development, what will the differences in my day-to-day life be as an infill resident? You know, saying talking about incremental development and it's a similar to what I was describing about the, working in the studio environment. Now we've got a lot of great developers and great architects constantly innovating and pushing new ideas and that's creating a really good positive loop so everyone has to compete with one another look i think compared to other parts around the country our apartment planning and our access to light and ventilation is 
far superior. Where we probably lack in comparison to other places is the craft of building because we have such a relatively low median house price compared to our construction price. Until that really improves, we won't be able to compete with the quality of external materials, the quality of the craft of building. We can definitely compete in terms of ability to get great natural light and ventilation, but our budget's in terms of delivering communal spaces and things like yeah, that. Yeah, and also just the facades is limited compared to places like Sydney and Melbourne. Now, that, that's a relatively minor difference in terms of the experience of the end user, but it does change about how proud someone is about the building that they live in. And it's again, comes around to breaking people's perception of multi-residential development or mixed-use developments where it's like it's not Buckridge Flats anymore in people's minds. It's actually yeah. a really crafted thing. So I think that will improve because I think we're starting to see the shoots of that median sort of apartment and unit price start to creep up. Well, it needs to, as you said, for a lot more of this quality and communal spaces to be able to come in, there needs to be a bit more in it for a developer to provide those things in the first place. And then that becomes the standard going forward. Yeah, Things like that would be... You know, this is one query I've got that I'm quite concerned about for existing apartment buildings is how the hell are we going to get EV charges into all these apartment developments, not just from a design perspective, but even from the allowed power. Services, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it also comes down to, you know, how fast can you charge? Now all projects we do have all got EV pretty much all their EV ready for every car bay. Pretty much every large-scale project now is minimum five-star green star. And a lot of that, there is a lot of contractor responsibility in terms of dealing with uh, waste and procurement of materials. Again, these are things which are becoming norms, but not necessarily affecting how you would inhabit the residents. You wouldn't but, notice most of it. Yeah. yeah, but they're incredibly important standards to do on a global sense. You know, we've got to get better at our waste streams and how we procure materials and also the health and lifespan of materials and then their effect on the end user. I think that's also something which probably has come out of COVID, people thinking more about the effect of materials and building standards on mental and physical health. So I think there'll be more of that. You know, we're seeing a lot more wellness elements come into communal areas, you know, where you have hot, cold pools, you've got you know, ice baths, you've got you know, all sorts of things, which a few years ago, people might have cynically said, this is some lefty yoga well, tink. I, I think yeah. about things like parcel collection. You know, yep. one of the big issues at Bottle Yard, as an example, again, is that your HelloFresh comes in or your Uber Eats come in. Half the time I go out there, it sits out in the sun at the front gate because no one has been able to deliver it. These days, I expect parcel collection would be a norm for most apartment developments. Absolutely, and that's something which is definitely now integrated. But I think as well, you know, there is going to be changes to transport. You look at the success of e-scooters and especially on inner city sites, you know, like Bottle Yard, where do you store these? What provision do you have for drone transport, which is probably not as far away as people uh, might think, you know? Yeah. That's going to be a big one because that will totally change how you deal with parking. And I think that's the interesting thing of like a project like the girls' school in East Perth. Huge scheme involving heritage renovations to turn it into a um, hospitality precinct. A cemetery. Opposite the cemetery. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the old girls' school gets turned into a great hospitality precinct. Breweries, bars, restaurants, new homes for outrage across the road supermarket new public space new parks a whole bunch of retail but what was critical there was the affordable housing delivered by assemble and housing choices a big aspect of that was getting parking above ground and typically in planning terms to do that is the biggest no-no like to have exposed parking but when you start to unwind the reasons why and you think about 
what's going to happen in the future with thousands of projects with multiple levels of basement, which you're using incredible amounts of energy to mechanically ventilate and light. What happens when we don't need to use them that much. Mm. The use of cars changes, which is probably not as far away as people think. Like, there's only so many basement bars you can do. Like, it's <laughs> like you've got multiple levels of basements everywhere. Especially in the suburbs. You've got no access to light and ventilation. You, what can you put in there? Mm. At the girls' school, there's the Mobility Hub, which is specifically designed above ground parking but it's been designed so you've got floor to floor heights at three and a half meters so it can be easily retrofitted it's been designed to allow you to stagger down over time and sort of shut down floor by floor because the ramps have been designed so that you can convert the top level or a portion of the top level first to offices or apartments so that it can actually be retrofitted so that it's not wasted embodied energy so that it's not wasted operational energy while it's in use and this is the thing which is challenging for planners, but then you, as soon as it's a built-to-rent scheme where those car bays are not tied to a strata entitlement, it's in their best interest, the people who are managing this project, to as quickly as they can convert car bays to an actual leasable income. And that's innovative. That's different. Mm. And that's what I think we'll start to see more of. And I think this is what you've demonstrated just now, the difference between a good architect and a fantastic architect is an ability to not only think about these things, but also convey these things to design review panels, to councils, to DAP, and make them think about that to justify what they otherwise would have thought is probably outside of the norm and expectation that they would accept. An argument like that is irrefutable and forward thinking and it makes them question why their parameters and arbitrary expectations are where they are in the first place and this is a, a fantastic bookend to the start of the episode when I referenced this is a guy at the top of his game this is what you need to be thinking about Jimmy and I'm so impressed to just hear that these ideas coming out of you are really cool Jimmy thank you so much for coming in so many other projects I love to talk to you about but in the meantime we'll all sit back continue to watch MGA projects come through planning and, and start to get built which is a big factor of what makes a good architect a great architect is actually plans that not only we can believe in but also the rest of the stakeholders can believe in from neighbors to planning offices to those that make approvals i look forward to seeing a few more of those lovely arches that you're designing at the moment hit the ground cheers trent thanks for having us thank you for listening to another episode of the perth property show if you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!